Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Saturday night. This is All the Things, and I am Monique Dusan. And I am Krista Bontrager. You're taking up half the, the frame. You got to move over. Uh, I need equity. Oh. <laughs> there is no equity in this room. <laughs> you guys, we are in our studio, our office studio, because our home studio is currently being redone. I'm super excited. We have um, some amazing friends, Lenny and Helena, who are taking charge on helping us redesign our studio. But in the meantime, that means we have to be here in our office studio, extremely close together. Okay. This is way too close. This is personal it's not, space. It's not made for two people. No, it's not. It's not made for one big person. I tend to be on the larger side of things at five, nine. So I'm just asking well, that the microphone you know. is way closer to you than it is to me. I need microphone equity here. I'm going to scoot it over. Uh, so did you tell them what show this is? This is the I show? already did. Okay. This is show where we discuss God, the Bible in real life. Yes, yes, yes. And helping us on the show tonight and every week is the one and only Bob Bontrager, who's over at the house. Yay. Yes. <laughs> in the midst of the crazy. So, so, so we're here. Mm-hmm. Bob's at the house. Yes. And we're going to try to make this work. Okay. Yes. So. Um, what is been happening in, well, first of all, we should probably say that we're live. So we want to invite everyone, if you're watching the stream to interact with us, go let us know you're watching. We've got an amazing show planned for tonight. Um, I think people are going to find this conversation really, really interesting. We're going to be talking about miracles and, um, looking forward to that. But first, yes. What have you been up to? Well, I've, I, you know what today? I just praise the Lord for this day because I didn't do much of anything yesterday. I worked so hard. There were so, there was so much that I got done yesterday. I felt so accomplished, but today I, last night I fell asleep at 10. I woke up at seven 30, eight o'clock this morning. And then we had our supporters call. So for all of the people who financially support um, the Center for Biblical Unity, once a month, we get on a supporters call or a partners call and we just chop it up. We talk about y'all. We talk about us. We just really get in and just have a family moment. So if you want to join that call, sign up and support monthly um, and then come and hang out with us. But we did that from nine to 10. It's on the third Saturday of every month. And then month. you slept the rest and of then the day. I, no, I didn't. Rebuke. <laughs> Then I took a two and a half hour nap and that was amazing. And then I got up and ate lunch and kind of just, you know, puddled around the day, but it was was so good. Sometimes you just need that, especially like with our travel schedule or, you know, you got to do things that that are really helpful for you. Okay. (laughs) So Bob, uh, quickly go on Monique's um, Facebook page. See if you can pull up her post from a couple days ago. You guys, let me tell you about this before we get into to all of our shenanigans. So when I, I made a post about the about our new podcast, the podcast that Kevin and I do, Kevin Briggins and I called Off Code, it received like, I think it was seen by like eight people. <laughs> and praise God for those eight people. Because the shadow banning is yeah. just so bad. I made a post about my face 
and all of the facial expressions that I do. And it was propagated to (laughs) to thousands of people. And there were tons of likes. And I was just like, what in the world? Shadow manning. So I can put a picture up of my face and like my attitude. And it gets seen by everyone, but a serious thing about the black church and like the issues that are within the black church and how we see that happen. Um, we see the consequences of those things in our current society only made it to eight people. Y'all, I was so irritated. <laughs> I don't know if Bob's got your many faces. I don't know if he has it. Oh, there it is. Yes. We're going to have to turn you into a meme or something. It's- So it just says that I can hide nothing with my face. Like I really can't. And I'm sure that if you've seen my screen caps from the show, they're all screen caps. (laughs) Look at my face. What is going on with my face? (laughs) Y'all somebody said in that, when I'm wearing that red sweater that like, I am literally just praying in my heart, like, Lord, you know what I finna say, please guard my ratchet. I was like, Oh my gosh, but it's so true, you guys. Oh man, it got a lot of comments and everything, a lot of interaction. So we need all those people to funnel that energy to Ofco. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes. Podcast. All right. Okay. So tonight we're going to be talking about the question, our miracles for today. Yes. And I am looking forward to this conversation. Me um, too. I think uh, you and I have both seen some miracles in Mm -hmm. our lives. Uh, I think you were a little surprised when you came home from Africa that there were Christians who actually kind of were more skeptical that miracles were still for today. Yes. I didn't realize that that was really a thing. I think um, I came from a charismatic background anyway, before I moved, like um, I was saved in the Assemblies of God church. Um, And so that was just its own experience, but then moving to South Africa and really seeing people with true like like medical issues i'm not saying miracles only happen in medicine but um seeing people with true medical issues and the church coming around and saying no we're going to actually believe the lord and you know many times there not being any other resource yeah. you know doctors or things like that um especially like when you get up into zambia or you know in working in haiti and stuff but um you know, I've, I've just, I'm not trying to say I've seen thousands or hundreds or even 50, but I have seen, you know, several, I, I would say I've seen a good share. And I mean, a good share, because I, I think here we don't see them that often. Yeah. You know, so I've seen a few too. So, um, you met, uh, Holly Pivik last fall. Yes. Holly and her favorite awesome trip family. of the year of all the trips you went on prior yes. your top two was going to see Holly up in Fairbanks. Yes. And because her youngest daughter also has a stitch pajama onesie, like I do, we like, I'm just going to announce that right on the show. I that care you less. Have a pajama onesie. I care less what people think. <laughs> you let me go ahead and let you know quickly. Um, yes, but we, we just, oh my gosh, like their family was just awesome. Her daughters were amazing. And her older daughter made me a purse and soap. Like I just, I absolutely loved Alaska. So, so we thought it would be fun to get Holly on the show and her writing partner and one of my old Talbot he was your professor. One of my old Talbot professors is a little, it's always a little um, awkward for me to be interviewing old professors. But uh, yeah, I was thinking back, I, I probably had Doug Guyvet as a professor. It had to have been like 94, 95, somewhere in there. So a long time ago. That's um, Anyway, so let's bring them on here and Yay! Uh, have some great fun. I'm looking forward to this. Welcome both Holly and Doug. 
Yes. Hey, hey guys. Thanks so much for having us on. We've been looking forward to this. So glad to be with you guys. And um, Holly, it's great to see you again, Doug. It's nice to meet you. Finally. Yes. Thank you yes. for thank you for being her professor. And thank you for such great information that I get to know. You can tell me how she was as a student. Hey, I heard her say it was awkward to interview an old professor. I'll wow. tell you what's awkward is being referred to that way. Being uh, I, I know. To as an old professor. And I'm now in that category a lot of the time. Well, maybe um, just tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you came to be writing partners on 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 this topic of uh, the new apostolic reformation which has really kind of been the focus of your books yes yeah i'll start here so i have a blog where i've been blogging for a number of years about the new apostolic reformation and i've co-written two books now with uh dr guyvet or doug guyvet and um and so I was, I went to Biola University as an undergrad there. I was also getting my master's degree in Christian apologetics there. And I was working uh, full time in the marketing office. I was the university editor and I was the managing editor of Biola magazine. And um, in that context, I would see, receive letters uh, from readers of the magazine. And this particular graduate of Biola contacted the magazine and she was hoping to contact, reach out to a professor at Biola who, uh, because she, there was this movement, she said, that was taking over churches in her city, and she was very concerned about it. And she described it as a movement of apostles and prophets that was uh, taking over these churches in her city. And so, and she was very concerned about the teachings, and she wondered if maybe there would be a professor or someone at Biola who would write a book responding to these teachings and show biblically where they go off. And so it caught my attention because I, I was a researcher of cults and off-key groups. Um, I was writing articles for the Christian Research Journal. I was getting my master's degree in apologetics, and I was very interested in, in learning about these different uh, types of groups. And I was, I was curious why I never heard about this movement before. And so I went online and I started doing some research on Google. And I quickly realized that this was a very large and influential movement, even though I'd never heard of it. And once I started learning about the movement, I actually started realizing I had encountered it and I knew people who were involved with it, but I just didn't realize it yet because I didn't recognize the terminology. I didn't recognize the buzzwords, the teachings, the practices. And um, so that's how I started researching this movement. And I was just, I realized how large and influential it was. And this was back in 2002 at that time. And I was wondering why uh, I had never heard of it. And so many people I knew had never heard of it, even though it was obviously so large and influential. So uh, I asked Doug, who I knew from Biola as a professor there at Biola, if he would consider partnering with me to write a book responding to this movement. And, and he agreed and I'll let him jump in now and share, share his story. Yeah. So I, I had not heard of the movement either, uh, the new apostolic reformation. And I told Holly that I wasn't sure I could really uh, lend a hand in any really helpful way. Uh, but she had drafted quite an extensive uh, set of notes for a manuscript on the topic, and she sent those to me. And as I read, I really uh, began to realize that this was a thing, and it was a serious thing. And it intersected with various uh, interests that I have, 
um, both as a believer just in general, but also uh, as, as a researcher, a teacher, an author. And um, one of the points of intersection was just on the topic of miracles, our topic for tonight, um, but more broadly um, in the whole domain of Christian apologetics, which is a large focus for you in your show oftentimes, I'm sure. Um, I was concerned that people who were initially drawn to the new apostolic phenomenon, this movement, uh, might eventually become disillusioned with it and maybe even walk away from Christianity because it was the only thing they knew and the only thing they could associate with the message of the gospel. And uh, that is an apologetic issue for me. And I was also concerned about how the world would perceive Christianity through the lens of this manifestation in the apostolic reformation, the new apostolic reformation. So I could see there a need to um, address this as an obstacle to belief for people who are coming out of the movement and as an obstacle to belief for people who are observing the movement from the outside and didn't know what else to make of Christianity. That was my initial interest. And then it just became much more intrinsically interesting intersecting with other concerns that I have about how people read the Bible, how literate they are, um, how, how we know who to trust for an authoritative message when they speak either from scripture or on their own. Uh, these are all very serious issues. And, uh, and so I was drawn in by uh, just the curiosity that I had and then the, the size of the movement too and how truly influential it is uh, globally. Now, I used to like a long time ago follow Bethel, and um, you know well, we should probably make teachings. clear like Bethel it, would be considered part of the yeah. new apostolic reformation. Yeah. But what I was going to ask is um, like what what is the new apostolic reformation? Because I think when we first started talking about this and talking about Bethel or some of those um, like churches in that stream or you know thoughts in that stream, I didn't understand at all what it was um, or why it was problematic, what the core tenets were. Can you explain some of that to us? Like, what is the new apostolic refor reformation? Um, yesterday, I called it the revolution. I, <laughs> I really don't know much. Um, but what is the new apostolic reformation and what are some of the, the tenets? Like, how will we know if we're encountering it? Right. And so it, the New Apostolic Reformation, or we call it NAR or NAR for short, is a fast-growing, it's global movement, and it's really causing a lot of division in the church. It's redefining key Christian terms like prayer, the gospel, the Great Commission, and the core belief is, so, so it's a movement led by church leaders who claim to be apostles and prophets, and they claim, the core teaching is, they claim that these modern-day apostles and prophets must govern the church. And by that, they mean they must hold formal offices, hierarchical offices in church government, and actually the highest offices. So, so uh, like pastors and elders hold offices in church government, except they would say that, that pastors and elders should submit to them, that all other church leaders should submit to them. And the reason is, is because they claim they're bringing critical new revelation that all believers must have uh, for the Great Commission to uh, be fulfilled. And so the Great Commission has been redefined in this movement as the church is supposed to take dominion or, or physical or socio-political uh, control of the earth and bring God's physical kingdom to earth. And, um, and so they would say that, that the way Christians are supposed to bring God's kingdom to earth 
is through waging spiritual warfare and through working great miracles, even greater miracles than Jesus worked, but that they have the revelations and the strategies that will enable all Christians to develop these miraculous powers. And so at a place, so Bethel Church in Redding, California, for example, they have a Bethel School Supernatural Ministry, and many supernatural schools of ministry are patterned after the one at Bethel now that are popping up. And they claim that they are activating people in miraculous gifts, gifts like prophesying, healing the sick, um, these kind of things. But the way they would say that they're activating people in this miraculous, these miraculous gifts is often through having people engage in activation exercises. So, for example, one that I witnessed when I went out to Bethel and witnessed uh, the adult Sunday school class there, the fire starters class, they would ask people to come to the front of the room who had never prophesied before and just randomly pick somebody in the room to give a prophetic word to and just say whatever words popped into their head as a prophetic word. No filters, just say what pops into your head as a prophetic word for someone in the room. Or, or sometimes what they'll do in this movement is they'll blindfold people and they'll have them stand back to back so they don't know who's behind them. And, and they'll ask God to tell them what the person's birthday is or their favorite color or things like that as a prophetic words. So these are ways they seek to activate people, for example, in the gift of prophecy. Um, but, but one thing I want to stress is, and one thing we really stress in our, in our books and interviews, is the teachings of this movement are not historic Pentecostal or classical charismatic teachings, a radical departure from that. Um, that we, we're not critiquing the beliefs of Pentecostals or charismatics that the spiritual gifts of prophecy or speaking in tongues or healing are for today. What we are critiquing is the belief that there's these governing offices of apostle and prophet that all Christians, including all church leaders, must submit to, and that they're bringing critical new revelation that the church must have, or else it won't be able to finish the Great Commission. And, and they would say the reason the church hasn't been able to complete the Great Commission to date hasn't been able to set up God's physical kingdom on earth, this dominionist version of the Great Commission is because they, apostles and prophets have been missing for, for the past couple thousand years. That's a very helpful yeah. definition and um, kind of delineating some important things because I think that for me, and, and I said this before we started the stream, like, I think that I assumed, and I think that probably maybe, maybe I'm the only one who assumed this, but maybe other people assume that um, you, Holly and Doug were, were cessationists and that you were kind of anti, almost anti-supernatural, you know, as, and I think that sometimes your books and your ideas do get um, almost weaponized by some people who are cessationists, but, um, you know, and they would say, well, this is evidence, like, that miracles aren't for today, but I appreciate your clarifying um, statements that you are not um, necessarily taking a position on that issue and you're differentiating the, the NAR from uh, traditional charismatics and Pentecostals. Yeah. If I might add a number of Pentecostal leaders and charismatics have endorsed our books because they are very concerned about this movement. Assemblies of God leaders have endorsed our books. Um, uh, Pentecostals and charismatics, many of them are very concerned about this movement because the teachings are making inroads, significant inroads into their churches 
and they're very concerned about that. And mm-hmm. so some of the some of the biggest critics of this movement are continuationists. So in your books, then, and either of you can answer this, would you say that you try to take kind of a neutral position in print on the question of our miracles for today, because that's part of your argumentation strategy? Is that kind of what I'm hearing you say? Doug muted. Doug, Doug, you're muted. Yeah, I got him. One of the the lessons we've learned from studying the movement, uh, NAR movement, is that we have to be very careful about our discernment with regard to miracles and understanding the context in which we can uh, reasonably expect miracles to happen and what kind of evidence we would want Mm. to be sure that a miracle has happened. So it is true. I, I mean, I think this whole debate between continuationists and cessationists, as they're called, um, is a very important one. I understand that. We both do. But um, we think that uh, it would be unfortunate for people to think that uh, you have to take a position on that question about whether the miraculous gifts, as they're sometimes called, um, are operative today or not. Um in order to have a, a real critique of NAR. And if, uh, if you're a continuationist, then you really don't have any uh, basis for criticizing NAR. And that's just simply not true. Uh, and that's what we're, we're concerned about. And we're really glad to have this opportunity to be here with you today to focus narrowly on that dimension of the topic of miracles and on that aspect of the new apostolic reformation. Yeah, I think, um, like Krista said, it's it's super helpful to be able to thread through, like, NAR doesn't just, um, you, you know, encapsulate, like, people who are um, charismatic or Pentecostal or things like that. Like, there is a threading through and a definition um, that sits outside of that. You know, um, tomorrow's Easter and the greatest miracle ever happened. You know, this is the time that we're celebrating this as a core aspect of our faith. Um, the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. The resurrection. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, yeah. yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I paid a lot of money to learn that in seminary. <laughs> okay. Well, there you go. Um, can you summarize the new Testament teaching on miracles and, um, yeah. What, what is the new Testament position? That's uh, a good place to start on, on yeah. miracles. Well, the New Testament position on miracles is pretty uh, complicated, and and, uh, the data that we have um, is varied. Some of the data would just be reports that we have of miracles that performed either by Old Testament figures like uh, Moses or any of the prophets or um, Elijah or miracles that took place in the lives of individuals like Jonah, though uh, he may not have performed miracles himself. And uh, because he was spared, you know, in the belly of the big fish, that was a a miracle that even Jesus alluded to in his teaching ministry. And then, of course, we have the examples of miracles in the life of Jesus and his work and in the lives of the apostles in the book of Acts. So we have narratives of events that are miraculous. In fact, the whole the Bible itself begins with a miracle. And I would say that miracles came before the laws of nature. Because God created the universe, ex nihilo, he created, he brought the universe, um, just uh, called it forth into existence out of nothing. And he did not use previously existing resources or materials, and he didn't do it in accordance with the laws of nature. The laws of nature owe their existence to the creation by God of the universe. 
And so really miracles are, are pretty basic to, uh, to reality, to the world in which we live. There wouldn't be a world if there hadn't been a miracle at the beginning. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's against the backdrop of that whole created order with the laws of nature that we can understand what a miracle is in contrast to an event that takes place naturally in accord with those laws that God um, ordained. So when we think about a miracle, that's a helpful definition is just that it's something we might say um, in some cases violates the laws of physics. If we're mm-hmm. going to put it in scientific terms, like dead men don't rise, you know, that's a violation of the laws of physics. Um, but I think it would probably also be helpful to explore a little bit of how miracles functioned in the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the apostles, because we definitely do see Jesus telling, sending out the 12 in Matthew nine, Luke nine, sending out the 72 in Luke chapter 10. And part of that, those instructions he gives them is heal the sick, cast out demons and, and proclaim the gospel and in proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come. So maybe it would be helpful to, to just expand that and, and, you know, what the role of miracles were in the life and ministry of Jesus and the, in the early church. Well, one thing to say about that is that uh, people were drawn to Jesus in part because of his miracles. In John 6, verse 2, for example, uh, we're told that very directly, that um, when it became well known that he would heal uh, people with various illnesses and do so miraculously, they would be healed spontaneously and immediately and completely of diseases and, and maladies that they had. Uh, this naturally attracted their, their interest, and people came on their own to witness miracles. They came because they felt a need for a miracle. Some people brought others who were in need of a miracle to be healed. So, for example, the paralyzed man, the paralytic, as he's called in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, was brought to Jesus by four of his friends, or several of his friends at least. Um, I always visualize four because he was lying on a, on a pallet that perhaps could have been carried uh, from, by the corners uh, by four individuals. And these were people who brought this man to Jesus. And so um, his miracles... Um, I think, were largely uh, done for the sake of um, helping people who needed a physician. But they were also symbolic of his power as the physician of the soul. So he is the great physician of the human condition, as uh, he is described. And so when he heals physically, he's actually um, exhibiting a kind of power that he has Uh, spiritually as well. And in healing the paralyzed man, just as an example, first he tells the man, your sins are forgiven, which is not why the man came to see Jesus in the first place. He's there for a healing. But uh, as he's lowered down uh, in front of Jesus, the first concern that Jesus has is for his spiritual welfare. And so he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. And in saying that, in declaring the forgiveness of his sins, the man becomes healed of his sinful condition. Uh, And then Jesus says, now, uh, some of you here are wondering how I can presume to forgive sins, because only God can do that, right? That's That's a prerogative that is due to God alone. But so that you will know that the Son of Man 
uh, has power on earth to forgive sins, watch what happens next. And he turns to the man again and he says, uh, take up your pallet and walk and go home. And the man does this. And it's to the amazement of everybody in the audience, including all the religious leaders that are probably stroking their beards and sitting on the front row, rolling their eyes until this happens. Um, Jesus is able to demonstrate that he is uh, here to uh, declare the uh, salvation that God has provided for human beings from sin. And he uses a miracle of healing this man's malady as a demonstration of his power to do that. I think one of the most important things about this passage for our time and in relation to the New Apostolic Reformation is that this is, I think, pretty transparently a case where Jesus performed a miracle and he did it in his own power as the Son of Man, as uh, God in human flesh, and, uh, and with the power to forgive sins that came with that authority. And this is important because many in the New Apostolic Reformation, Bill Johnson, who's the pastor of Bethel Church, is a good example. Uh, many will say that when Jesus performed miracles, whether it was healing or otherwise, uh, he did not do this in his own power, but he did it in direct dependence on the Spirit of God or God the Father, who worked through him as he submitted his will to theirs and, or, or to God the Father's will. And uh, we think that this is a serious mistake to interpret Jesus' uh, miraculous action in this way. But there's a reason why he teaches this and why others in the New Apostolic Reformation do. And that is because of the way they understand a passage in uh, John chapter 14, where Jesus says to his disciples, who are gathered with him in the upper room, the works that you've seen me do, you will do also, and greater works than these will you do as well. Now, uh, some leap to the conclusion that the works that Jesus is talking about here are miracles. And in fact, there's a translation, so-called, of the Bible, called the Passion Translation of the Bible. It's produced by Brian Simmons, who is pretty uh, heavily involved in the New Apostolic Movement, the New Apostolic Reformation. This translation, as he likes to call it, uh, renders the Greek word for works here in this passage as miracles. And so he simply interprets the passage to mean miracles and doesn't give the reader the opportunity to discover for himself what the works are that Jesus is referring to. He makes that decision for them. And uh, I think it's a mistake because I don't think that Jesus is talking about his miracles. In fact, if he is, I think it's only some of what he's talking about, that his works may be more inclusive than just that. So when Jesus says, the works that you've seen me do, you will do also, may include miracles, and we know that the disciples did, in fact, perform miracles. If we read the book of Acts, we don't even have to read very closely or very carefully to see that they perform miracles, that they did things like the things that Jesus did. But then when Jesus says, and greater works than these, I think he's clearly talking about other things besides miracles, and we see them doing greater works than what Jesus did in his lifetime in the book of Acts as well, when uh, they go about doing the things that they did and preaching a gospel that is for the whole world now and, and really um, seeing the Holy Spirit come upon the church and indwell uh, believers as they come to faith. 
So this is a great work that goes beyond anything miraculous like was seen in the life of Jesus, even though that included raising people from the dead. So it's very important that we understand that when Jesus performed miracles, if not always, then certainly in very critical cases, uh, he did it in his own power and not in dependence on the spirit of God as a mere man, like uh, Bill Johnson would say, or Randy Clark or others uh, for that matter. Okay, so let me let me see if I'm catching what you're saying there, because right at the end, I was like, oh, okay, so what they're, your understanding of Bill Johnson and others in the NAR stream is that what they're saying is not that, um, what they what they're saying is that Jesus did these miracles in his humanity with the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's, right. that's analogous to us yes. as humans walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. So then we can or ought to be able to replicate the miracles of Jesus or even greater miracles. Do I have that right? That's right. Yeah. It's because. Uh, look, let's put it this way. Um, that would be a deep error. If that, that's is a deep, the, that is a deep mistake. That, that would be a very deep error. I hadn't mm-hmm. apprehended that, that that's what they're teaching, but that makes sense of some things I've heard them say in a very disorganized way. And that's very illuminating and helpful. Mm-hmm. So go ahead, Doug. I'm sorry. I'm just like. Right. I mean, we know not only from the response of the people and of Jesus' own disciples to him when he performed miracles, but we know from certain things that the authors of the New Testament say about miracles, that one purpose for these miracles is that they attest to his deity and to uh, the role that he plays in bringing salvation, God's plan of salvation uh, for us. Take um, the miracle of the calming of the Sea of Galilee, for example, when the disciples are in the boat, the great storm, erupts and they're desperate. These are uh, very experienced uh, fishermen who now are desperate because they fear for their very lives, that their boat will be capsized and they will be lost in the sea. And Jesus is asleep in the boat and they don't understand this. And they go and they wake him and they bring him uh, to the bow of the ship and they say, look what's going on here. Can you save us? Why haven't you done this? And he just holds out his hand and he says, peace, be still. And that's exactly what happens. All is calm. And uh, we're told that the disciples then began to look at each other in wonderment. And that's when it struck them that they were dealing with somebody that they really didn't understand very well. And it wasn't just somebody who was performing a, a, a miracle, maybe with the power of God at his disposal. No, they said, we want to know who is this man? such that even the wind and the sea obey him. They obey him. So he gives a direct command. And as a result, there is the obedience of the elements of the natural world. That is divine power um, at his disposal, very directly. And I don't see how it could be misunderstood or understood any other way than that. So but you see, a... if you want, if you want to say that we can do what Jesus did, then you can work backwards to the conclusion that when Jesus worked his own miracles, it must have been in the same way that we would be limited mm-hmm. in right. dependence on mm-hmm. the Spirit of God. So there's a question on YouTube, just for clarification. Um, 
It says, so are we denying that the spirit was upon Jesus without measure? From Sims Jones. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, I think it's the, well, I'll let you answer. Uh, not my own understanding. <laughs> I, I, I think that what they're getting, what he's getting at, he or she is getting at is, you know, that um, the, the spirit did play a role in the, in the ministry of Jesus, but it's not in the way that the NAR is saying it. Yeah, yeah because they correct. would say that it was not, that he did it in his flesh, not according to his divinity. Certainly correct. the passage that speaks of this, uh, relationship that Jesus has to the spirit says nothing about his dependence on the spirit to be able okay. to perform miracles. Mm-hmm. Okay. So maybe we can, that's, that's really helpful. Yeah. So when we see like in the book of acts, I'm thinking of acts chapter eight, for example, we see Philip, the evangelist go up to Samaria and um, he does many of the similar things that we heard Jesus send out the 72 in Acts chapter 10, you know, heal the sick, cast out demons, um, proclaim the kingdom of God. We see Philip the evangelist do those things in Acts chapter 8. And so there does seem to be a bit of a carryover that in the early church they were um those they were seeing that same pattern, mm-hmm. you know, that that Jesus had sent out. And I, I think that many people from Bethel would say, well, we're just following in that pattern of, of Philip the evangelist um, who was following in the pattern of Jesus. But I think what I, I, I don't know, what would, how would you respond to that? I don't want to do all the talking here. I That's okay. want Holly to jump in too. Well, um, you know, I, I think with the, with the NAR, there are a number of teachings about miracles that are not supported by the book of Acts or anywhere in scripture. So the idea that miraculous gifts can be activated in any believer who desires them, that cannot be supported in scripture. The idea of activating miraculous gifts is this novel, actually, invention in, in church history that's recent, or or the idea that... Um, that we can, um, you know, uh, work greater miracles than Jesus did or, or the, or, or the prayer declarations. That's another key thing. I mentioned that in NAR, they redefine prayer. Well, in NAR, the most powerful form of prayer is not petitionary prayer. It's not asking God to, um, asking God, God, if it's your will, will you please do this or that it's, it's commanding, uh, that a healing will occur. Uh, it's, it's a commanding that a miracle will occur. And it's based on the belief. It's a, based on the word of faith teaching, actually, that that similar to the way God spoke and created that the believers have the authority through their spoken words to create reality. And so um, this is a NAR teaching about miracles that, that radically departs uh, from what we see in scripture and, and through church history. And um what we saw, for example, when Bethel Church was seeking to to raise little Olive from the dead. I, if you heard about that story oh, yeah. back right before uh, right before really COVID hit in, in yeah. December of I guess that would have been 2019, um, a little a little girl who was the daughter, like a two year old toddler, she was the daughter of a worship leader at Bethel Church, died unexpectedly. It uh, very sad. And um, so Bethel rallied around the parents and, and actually encouraged their followers globally 
to, to start praying for a resurrection for this girl, Olive. But when they said pray, they weren't speaking a prayer as in petitionary prayer of asking God to raise Olive from the dead. Mm-hmm. They were, they were talking about prayer declarations. And if you go back and look at what they said, they were, they were saying that they were declaring that Olive would be raised from the dead. And that story was picked up in national media. It was spread you know, uh, it was being followed um, around the world and people around the world were joining in and in support and of these prayer declarations. And so I think it's really important to keep in mind all of these big differences in our teaching about miracles. Um, it, it, there, um, there, there is a lot that, that deviates uh, from historic or classical Pentecostal charismatic teaching. I think that's, Interesting, because now we're kind of transitioning into the question of our miracles for today, which is really where we want to go. And, you know, when when Monique and and Monique and I have both seen medically verified miracles and know people firsthand, not friends of friends, but but actual firsthand experiences with that. Um, Now, when you were in Africa. Raising the dead was somewhat of a thing there. Like you, I don't want to say it was a thing. Like but you, you know, knew it happened every that you know, knew couple hours. Yeah, yeah. So like I don't know anybody who has been risen from the dead people. Um, but I, at the church I was attending um, at the time, there was a report of someone. It was on a missions trip okay. where something happened, and the person who was dead then was not dead anymore. I was not there. But that is like, I feel like that is part of the culture in, I mean, definitely in this church, but then in a lot of, um, well, I was in South Africa and I was in Zambia and just the idea of miracles just being commonplace, like, and when I say commonplace, it's like that you can ask the Lord, like if, if there's something in a petitionary way, yeah. Holly and Duggar described. Yeah, it. Okay. like you pray for healing. Um, I would say even more so in Zambia because doctors weren't like readily av- available in the bush village or in South Africa in like a township or in a community that is, you know, lower socioeconomically, you pray. And yeah. so when I came home, I was really surprised to see that there were many people who didn't believe this way. Um it was a little shocking for you. Yeah. We were also Christians. And again, it's not like I was seeing miracles happen every day. Like, you know, I'm just stepping out and there's a miracle. It wasn't that. Yeah. So I think like, you know, when we're thinking about this, it would be great to just hear from you guys, whatever you feel comfortable exploring. Cause again, we realize in your books, you try to maintain a neutral position, but I'm just wondering like if either of you have thoughts about how you think about miracles for today and you know, how, how you've come to, to see those things or to think about them. Mm-hmm. Well, I could say something about that for myself. I, you know, I believe that uh, what God, let's put it this way. First of all, any miracle, as I would understand a miracle that happens, happens in accord with the will of God. And uh, is ultimately attributable to divine agency. Either God acts directly, uh, maybe from from the heavens, uh, he he causes a miracle to occur. He might flood the whole earth as he did in the days of Noah uh, for the purpose of judgment of the sins of humanity. And so there are some miracles that occur 
that are for the purposes of judgment. Uh, we're told in the book of Revelation to expect miracles of that sort uh, in the future, events that God will cause in the natural world that will uh, bring judgment on the earth. Um, there are things that God has done through others, through agents, through angelic beings, for example, who are his, his messengers on the earth. Uh, and then, of course, Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh and working miracles directly in his own power, as we talked about before. So God is, is always able um, and presumably willing to um, do something in the world that would not happen just with the ordinary course of things, just in the ordinary course of things. There are things that God may want to do that cannot be accomplished any other way than through a miracle. Uh, tomorrow is Sunday, Easter Sunday uh, this year, and we will celebrate something like that. We will celebrate the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, who accomplished our salvation through his crucifixion and resurrection, something that could not have been accomplished except by means of a miracle. So the miracle is actually part of uh, the gospel. There is no gospel without the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus. And so one purpose is to make possible your salvation and mine. Uh, another purpose of that miracle, of course, is to attest to the divine authority of Jesus and of his his message. Uh, Paul says in Romans 1.4, he was declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection. Uh, that resurrection is evidence of his power. So we have to ask um, about the relative importance of miracles even today uh, within the total Christian framework. We can get very excited about the things that God is doing, and we love to see reports and hear reports or witness cases of people who've been healed miraculously by God. And I know of cases like this, and you've attested to some of those even during our show here. So uh, that's all wonderful. But what's interesting to me about these miracles is that they don't provide any evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And so they don't actually provide us with the kind of support for the core teachings of Christianity that we need if we're going to believe the gospel. You see, what we have to believe is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. This was always present in the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts. You know, you just go through their various sermons and you see it. It's a constant theme with them. And one question would be, on what basis should we today believe that this miracle actually happened? And it's not clear to me how the many miracles that people have witnessed or say they've witnessed today uh, reinforce the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, because it's a unique miracle in its own right. I mean, even the miracles of Jesus during his own lifetime uh, were not evidence that he was going to rise from the dead. He had to rise from the dead in order for that evidence to be made available. So we could talk about uh, how important um, it is that we focus our attention on the evidence of the miracle of the resurrection, even for our own day, and not be distracted by the attention that other miracles that happen under our noses um, might, uh, might naturally attract. So that's a, I think that's just an important lesson for us about getting things in the right order of priority. And I know of people today, 
I've read uh, stories even by some apologists who would say that um, they've had, you know, they, they appreciate the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, but it's, it's so uh, compelling to see the evidence of miracles in our own day. Well, that is compelling if you witness a miracle, but it doesn't provide you with compelling evidence for the crucial claim that we make as Christians and that our uh, salvation depends upon, namely the resurrection of Jesus. That's an interesting yeah. way of thinking about it. I'm going to have to think about that, Doug, because I've, I haven't really considered it quite that way. I think my position uh, up until about six or seven years ago was one of miracles for today. All right, how do I answer that question? You know, well, I, I'm open to them. It's theoretically possible. I've never seen one. Um, but as an apologist, I would argue for the miraculous based on the evidence of scripture, you know, looking at miracles in the life of Jesus and the resurrection. About seven years ago, my my view shifted quite a bit because I saw several miracles over a short period of time, like medically verified miracles. And I kind of shifted from a position of miracles are um, more on like the rare side and I've never seen one, although I've prayed for many, never seen really the, the fruit of a miracle to, wow, I've now seen several. And I don't know, that just kind of made me rethink some of my own skepticism about them, or maybe, mm-hmm. maybe I don't even, maybe skepticism is too harsh of a word, but you know, just, I kind of became more open to the conversation, but at the same time, I do see the excesses and the problems Mm -hmm. with the Bethel method. And um, so it's, it's, I'm trying to walk this line of being open to miracles, having seen miracles and wanting to, you know, pray for miracles, but at the same time, not falling, not saying like, well, if you're in that posture, oh, then you're automatically in the NAR. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to add to that. No, I just have a ton of questions swirling yeah. through my head. I'm trying to like put them all in order mm-hmm. um, because I think what I hear your your position is meaning. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Is that miracles should always point to the resurrection of Jesus, right? Or somehow well, get us to the gospel. Yeah. Well, we should not be uh, so. Uh, consumed, I guess, would be a word to use with, um, shall I call them garden variety miracles, uh, uh, miracles in the, in the uh, routine of, of our lives and then the lives of people that we encounter, um, and, and to the expense or neglect of the focal miracle, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So, so you wouldn't I, want miracles to replace our attention. Yeah. On the resurrection. And I wouldn't want people to think that you could, uh, that you, well, first of all, I wouldn't want people to think that you needed miracles um, as evidence today mm-hmm. to have justified belief in the resurrection of Jesus. Mm-hmm. I think that you Got don't it. need miracles yeah. for that. So I don't think that we, we have to have miracles to have justified belief in the gospel message of Jesus Christ. I don't, and I think there are going to be many people today 
um, who, who go through life without ever witnessing a miracle, and yet they believe. Uh, Jesus said when he spoke with Thomas, you remember Thomas, um, who was absent when Jesus showed up in the upper room, and all the other disciples got to see the resurrected Lord, but Thomas was not there. And when he came back, they said, oh, Thomas, you missed out. <laughs> Jesus was just here. And he says, oh, I, I can't believe it. I won't believe it until I see it for myself. And he had that opportunity. And Jesus said, uh, you know, Thomas, blessed are those who will believe without seeing, but they're going to believe because of your testimony. And in John chapter 17, in the so-called high priestly prayer of Jesus, Jesus prays. It's interesting. He prays throughout the, the words of that chapter for his disciples in various ways that they will be unified, that their message will be understood that they will carry the torch that he passes to them and all of this, and they'll be successful. But then he says, there's this really interesting thing. He sneaks in there and he says, and I pray also for all those who will believe on me through their word. Mm -hmm. And I believe that includes you and me. I, I think that includes anyone who is in the stream of faith as a result of the faithful eyewitness testimony of the disciples to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, that message has been passed down over the centuries and throughout the generations. And you and I believe because of their faithful report. And it's not because of any miracles that happen today, whether they're healings or um, answers to prayer, dramatic answers to prayer, because think about it this way. A particular miracle gives you a reason to believe something in particular. The resurrection of Jesus gives you a lot to believe about Jesus, things that you're not entitled to believe just on the basis of the evidence of, let's say, healings that transpire today. So you see, the kinds of miracles that we witness today don't provide us with the crucial support we need for the central truths of the Christian story. That's the point that I'm trying to make there. Yeah, I I've just never thought about it that way. So I'm going to have to, my brain's going to have to, or my mind's going to have to process that a little bit more, but I, I see what you're saying with that, that, you know, even if we do see a, a let's say a medically ver verified miracle or someone mm -hmm. being raised from the dead, that the claim of the resurrection is, is, is really what needs to be considered as the central claim of our faith. And um, that's just an interesting way of, of thinking about it. Could that be though partnered with like, so let's say someone um, prays for someone and they get healed of like whatever their situation is. Could that person then use that opportunity to share about the power of the Holy spirit that's available because of the resurrection of Jesus? Yeah, I think that if they do share it that way, then they'll be drawn naturally into um, other other things that uh, they need to share, they need to talk about. I mean, telling you about my healing is not enough to communicate to you the gospel and, and, and the call for repentance. And, um, you know, th yeah, there's nothing inherent in a miracle of healing today, I think that would um, be a call on the life of another person to repent of his sins and have faith in Jesus Christ. So 
we have to be very careful that we don't associate the miraculous with the distribution or the dissemination of the gospel and confuse the message of the gospel with the manifestation of signs and wonders in the world today. Mm-hmm. And that's something that the, the that does happen within the new apostolic reformation. They speak of the gospel of the kingdom and they associate the kingdom with the invasion of heaven on earth through the manifestation of signs and wonders. And so this uh, confuses the gospel with the manifestation of signs and wonders in a way that I think is, is actually potentially perilous to individuals because it's, it, it, it mis, uh, leads them with respect to the actual nature of the gospel. Um, the gospel doesn't require participation in the miraculous in order for it to be effectual in your life. That's a good thing for generations of Christians, right? Uh, but it's something that you, you know, that's something that you will hear um, if you listen closely within the uh, new apostolic movement that we're talking about. Holly, do you have anything to add? Well, I was thinking, you know, there's some people who, who never are healed and we don't want to yeah. confuse true biblical faith is that God loves us. He's working in our lives. Even if he chooses not to work a miracle Yes. and there will be yes. people who never see a miracle in, in their life perhaps, but, um, but, you know, we don't want them to think that that's any reflection on God's love for them or the truth of the Christian faith. Um, yes. And, um, and so, and, and another key in our teaching is that it is always God's will to heal a person of sickness or disease. There are no exceptions. And so what that does is it puts the blame on either the sick person or the person seeking to heal the sick person. If the miracle doesn't happen. And there are a number of statements in Bill Johnson's writings where he does exactly that, the, he, the blame is put uh, on, on the sick person or the person praying for their healing. And that, mm. so we, we've had letters just pouring into us from our readers, um, sharing the damage that's been done to them through these false promises of healing through the division caused by this movement. I mean, it's churches are splitting, um, uh, families are splitting, kids are cutting off their parents, um, because they're, they're going off to, to Bethel, Reading School of Supernatural Ministry or, or other getting involved with other NAR organizations and like the International House of Prayer in Kansas City or, you know, these other NAR organizations and cutting off their parents. And um, the teachings are very divisive because if you say that, that you have to submit to the leadership of these apostles and prophets and receive their revelation or else, or you're, else you're outside God's will, um, they would say that the people who do not follow their, these apostles or prophets or will be mere spectators as, as the others bring God's kingdom to earth. And if you criticize these apostles and prophets, they label you with a lot of disparaging labels. You're called a, uh, I've been told I have a Jezebel spirit. You're, you know, a Pharisee, a heresy hunter, um, you know, all these kind of labels that are, that are given to the critics of the movement. So it's a very divisive movement. And um, that's one reason that we're really concerned as well. Yeah about this movement. I think one of the excesses that can definitely happen, and I want to speak very clearly to this, um, because I had a phone call recently with a follower of the ministry about this issue, is this this conversation about blaming, uh, um, you know, in a healing situation. Um, I think that that is a profoundly 
unbiblical, unhelpful, and emotionally, spiritually damaging mm-hmm. practice of telling people that, you know, that they don't, the reason they're not getting healed is because they don't have enough faith. Um, I think I, and, and that can be both in like word faith streams, some charismatic, you know, so that's, that's out there in other places. And so I want to say unequivocally, like that I think is, is a very harmful message. Um, but also this idea that, um, you know, this kind of gets into the question of testing. Here's my issue with, because uh, I have many friends who are of this, in this um, stream, in the NAR stream and go to house of prayer type churches, Bethel type churches. And I've been in ministry with those people. And um, I have friends with those people. And so, I don't know, this could be some awkward conversations later, but um, I think like one of the the more difficult issues I've, I've had with my friends in that stream is the issue of testing. Um, And I think that in some even charismatic and Pentecostal streams, this is also an issue of, you know, well, can we just at least have a conversation about testing the spirits or testing the validity of this so-called miracle or, or getting verification, or even like, can we have a conversation about um, proper hermeneutics of the scriptures? And are we interpreting the scriptures faithfully? There is this kind of cloak of, you know, well, thinking too much is, you know, it's almost demonic. If you think too much, it's, it's, it's seen as, um, being less than Holy Spirit filled. And in, in my view in, is that the, the, the cure for these excesses on both sides is not like to fall into the other side. It's to, it's testing. It's first Thessalonians five. It's test all things, hold fast to that, which is good. Don't quench the spirit, but test things. So, but it's hard in, in some of these circles to even have that discussion about testing and it can start to look like canceling at times you know mm-hmm. in the relationships so yeah go ahead there was something that you said that made me wonder like well if if someone says well you know this miracle took place and there let's say it was a medical miracle but there's no like doctor's report like mm-hmm. how i think what what gets me with bethel or you know some of the the other ministries that are out there is that they pray for someone and then it's like, okay, yes, my headache is gone. Or yes, you know, I was healed from this thing. If, if it's not um, the Holy Spirit, if it's not the Lord, then what are we accrediting this to? Yeah, Does that make well, sense? Sure. And Jesus himself warned that there would be false prophets who perform signs and wonders. So uh, the testing issue is a huge issue, and it's not always just really obvious that because you've witnessed something supernatural or um, apparently supernatural, that it's from God. I mean, if it is supernatural, genuinely um, miraculous, then I think it will be from God. But uh, we were, we've been warned in, New Testament, in the New Testament that uh, Satan will try to deceive even the elect with signs and wonders. And so, uh, you know, we have to expect that that's going to be a fulfillment of new Testament prophecy 
when that happens. And uh, so I don't think we can be too careful. I don't uh, want to encourage people to just be un uncritical uh, and uh, and too ready to believe the first miracle claim that they hear reported. Look, there are a number of things to say about this. One is I think that um, the, the initial, the primary beneficiary of a healing miracle is the person who was ill and is now healed. He, that person is the primary beneficiary. Eyewitnesses to the event are beneficiaries as well because their faith is strengthened, things happen, and, uh, and they, they give glory to God. But the further removed you are from the event itself, the less beneficial it is to you. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, I, you know, I think that there is a, a high expectation uh, today that, that permeates uh, church life in many places that you're supposed to believe all the reports and that you're supposed to just simply have faith that these things really did happen. Mm-hmm. And maybe, you know, uh, if you're meant to uh, believe uh, in a, a particular miracle, maybe you'll be an eyewitness someday to one yourself and you'll be able to attest to it and, and explain uh, on your own why it is that you believe it happened. Uh, and that would be a fine thing. But uh, don't feel like you have to believe what other people are telling you um, or else there's some problem with you. There's a lack of faith on your part. You know, I teach a discipline in philosophy called epistemology, and this is all about knowledge and how we acquire knowledge and how knowledge is grounded. And uh, I like to uh, point out uh, an important distinction between three things. Uh, For any proposition that you contemplate believing, you're considering whether to believe it or not, whether to think it's true or false, you have three options. You can either believe it, hold that it's true, or you can deny it, believe that it's false, or you can withhold judgment. And what you should do, which of those three attitudes you should take towards any given proposition, depends upon whatever evidence you personally have at the time. So if you hear a a miracle report, you've got three options. You can believe it, you can deny it, or you could simply withhold judgment. And what you should do depends on the character of your own evidence. And if your evidence is inadequate to make up your mind, there's nothing wrong with just simply withholding judgment. So your choices are not just these two. Well, I either have to believe that it's true or I have to believe that it's false. You don't have to do either one if your evidence doesn't strongly support one over the other just from your point of view. And I think that's where a lot of people are today. I think a lot of people just are not in a position personally to be able to say for themselves whether it's likely that what they've heard really did happen. But now here's something to keep in mind. Some people are taught that within a certain uh, faith community or community of believers, Miracles are pervasive. They happen all the time, and they're part of the the normal Christian life. I think this is what people associate with church life at Bethel Church in Redding, California. That certainly Uh, seems like the goal that they're going for is to make something you strive for very normal. Yeah, it's normalizing the miraculous. Now there are a lot of things to say about this, but one thing that you have to be very careful about is just simply believing it because it's being said a lot, and. Mm 
Another problem that you have to be careful with is, well, what if miracles are expected? And I mean expected in the strongest sense of the term, as if you actually know in advance that a miracle is going to happen and then it doesn't happen. See, I think that says something about the community, too. And we were talking about the case of Olive, the toddler who did not rise from the dead, even though it was expected in this strong sense of the term. And so I think that that is itself counter evidence that you have to factor into the total evidence you have for the miraculous character of the community itself. Now, that's that's a difficult thing to say, but it seems to me to be an especially egregious form of ministerial malpractice when you tell people that someone is going to be raised from the dead and it doesn't happen and you've got the whole world you know, praying uh, prayers of declaration to that effect, and then it doesn't happen. This says to me that they don't understand how miracles really work, and yet they're supposed to be the experts on these things. That's how they're represented by some who speak on their behalf. So that's a that's a concern that I have, is that uh, people might not consider the cases of that sort as they try to weigh the total evidence for the alleged miraculous character of the community or the, or, or, or the life of that particular uh, group. So we hear quite often people say, you know, I've never been to Bethel. I'd like to visit. Um, I've uh, great things are happening. It's clear that God is doing a great work. Don't get me wrong. I don't agree with everything they say. But it's pretty obvious that God is doing a great work. Well, how is it obvious is what I'd like to know. And what is it that you disagree with? And how do you put the two together is a very important question. Yeah, I think part of, um, you know, in this in this, I should expect it. It should happen. It like almost ventures into a must happen Mm. when it doesn't happen. Is there a blame game? And like, like what you were saying earlier, like it can make you look at, well, maybe you didn't have enough faith. Maybe the person praying for you didn't have enough faith. Maybe there was something there, but then it can also turn to a bitterness or a disgruntledness against God. Like, well, this is what he does. And so if this is what he does and what I can expect from him when he doesn't show up, what is our response? And I put show up in air quotes because, you know, that's not, we don't treat God that way. Like he must show up, but um, you know, I wonder if that creates a blame situation. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, that's the dark side of the conversation about miracles that many people don't want to have is the, the issue of, well, what happens, you know, when there is the petitionary prayer or when you are in a Bethel situation, there's these commanding prayers and God doesn't show up in the way that they're wanting and, Mm -hmm. and talking about is the normalization of miracles that can be very damaging to people Um, emotionally, spiritually, it can be confusing. And I think that that is a part of this that very few people want to want to have the conversation about, but if we're going to have the conversation about miracles, I think that has to be part of it. So. Yeah, we receive letters from people and, and we actually we're working on new books where we share stories, some of those stories of, of heartache from people who who 
were promised healing and, and it didn't happen and the disillusionment and, um, a lot of people will, um, leave church. They'll just stop attending church and, um, they won't necessarily stop being Christian, but they find it very hard to go back to church or to trust any church. They, um, and, and a number of people walk, do walk away from their faith as well. So, and that's, uh, something that's very concerning to me, a big part of my testimony when I was, um, younger in junior high, um, I was really having doubts about my Christian faith. I was raised in a Christian home, but I wanted to know, how do we know it's true? Uh, how do we know? I don't just believe this because I was raised this way. And if I had been raised in another religion, I would have believed that. And my dad gave me a Josh McDowell book. And that's when I discovered that the Christian faith was based on evidence. And, um, and so that was a lifeline to me. At a, and it really, that's when I uh, really took off in my faith and became convinced of it. And, and so it's my heart really is for young people today that they know that our faith is based on a sure foundation. It's not, um, you know, based on claims of glory clouds appearing and, and alleged miracle claims that are, don't have evidence or, um, you know, these, these kind of things. Our faith is based on a sure foundation. And this is important because so many young people are growing up today in our churches where they're not being taught that and critical thinking is disparaged in these churches. And they even have a term. They say, if, you know, if you use critical thinking, you have a Greek mindset is what they call it, as opposed to a Hebrew mindset, you know, and a Greek mindset values critical thinking and reasoning and is skeptical and these kind of things. And so, um, but it's very important for young people to know that our faith can stand up to scrutiny and that we don't uh, need to call people names or disparage them if, if they do want to scrutinize even miracle claims to see if they withstand scrutiny, because a true miracle has nothing to be afraid of from scrutiny. And all these false miracle claims actually cheapen the true. Um, and so overuse of the word miracle and just calling everything a miracle, it's a miracle, it's a miracle actually cheapens uh, the genuine. Boy, that's a, that's a great point. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. that I, it's, so I think what I'm, as we kind of wrap up here, I, I think what I hear both of you saying is, you know, one of my takeaways from this conversation is going to be um, that, you know, there can be an openness to miracles happening today, but we should also be careful not to allow that to obscure uh, the resurrection and the evidence of the resurrection and that that, um, is something that stands on its own and needs to be considered as a core of our faith. Yeah, I was going to say similar. Um, I think my takeaway is that um, in everything that we do, we should be pointing to Christ and Christ crucified and Christ resurrected. Um, that 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 is the the focal point. Um, do, are miracles possible for today? Yes, and. You know, I think Doug's point was amazing that we're warned in the New Testament that, you know, false prophets um, will come, you know, and, and try to do works and, you know, trying to to sweep away even the elect um, is such a good point. And so to your point of, you know, how do we test? Are we testing the spirit? Are we testing the grounds on which these miracles have occurred and things like that um, <clears throat> is very, very important. So it's not to say that miracles, you know, are, are gone and done away with, but we must be, um, 
we, we must be careful in our thinking and making sure that we are testing the spirits, that we're, that we're operating according to the scripture, and that in all things, we are pointing back to, to Jesus. Yeah. Uh, did, did we get the, the takeaways okay? No, I think it's did a great takeaway. That's a big, that's a lot right there, you know, yeah. and it is good to remind ourselves of the reasons why we believe the core miracle of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus. He's risen and he's risen indeed. On what basis can we really believe that? And uh, let's be careful that we don't put our hope in uh, things that may actually be miraculous, or it could turn out that they aren't. And then we're disappointed and we think that God is not who he uh, promised uh, us to be. You know, this expectation of the miraculous and its pervasiveness within the, the, the life of the believer and the church um, it's tied to a doctrine of prayer, and it's tied to a view about how you know who to believe when they speak or when they preach the word. Um, you know, if you believe that a person is uh, gifted in the miraculous and uh, and then they say something that you've never heard before, you might be inclined to believe it simply because you've accepted their claims to be uh, miracle workers. And uh, that's a very risky thing. It's at least a reason why we have to examine each uh, miraculous claim um, on its own merits so that we know whether to trust the so-called miracle worker, right? So we don't go by just the title of, oh, they have, they're an apostle, they're a prophet, you know, we're, we're testing each claim. I think Another takeaway for me tonight, Doug, that you were very helpful in helping me understand better is Bill Johnson's view of, you know, Jesus doing the miracles, you know, um, in his humanity and then empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that's analogous to how we ought to be doing the miracles and and how they teach that. That was Mm -hmm. very enlightening for me and, and kind of putting some pieces together of things that I've heard them say. And um, super helpful also thinking about how that diminishes, you know, Jesus's deity and, and really um, looking at him as fully God and fully human. But also, I think another takeaway for me tonight is that um, thinking about miracles, like the, the, the correction for these excesses is not to be afraid of miracles for today like the correction for this is, is something else. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would say that the correction would be getting into your word and doing proper hermeneutics and understanding like what the word of God says and what is meant, you know, to the audience that was, that the, the word was written to, to use wisdom and discernment, to test the spirits, to, you know, like, to do all of these things that, that they're talking about right now Mm -hmm. as, as the correction or um, the way to kind of draw that line in the sand. No, we don't need to be afraid of it, but I do need to walk in wisdom so that I'm not just, you know, Ooh, the miracles over here. Let me run over here. Oh, the miracles now over here. Let me run over (laughs) there. Now I'm just being tossed to and fro and using up all my $7 gas money, trying to chase the next miracle. But that can become part of that culture. I mean, I have seen that with people who go down this path is that then they start chasing the next miracle, the next experience. Mm-hmm. And that, that in and of itself can also be 
damaging to people over time. And you, I think you lose chasing Jesus or chasing mm-hmm. like, cha- like being with him, being, being in the word and, and understanding the word of God when I'm constantly chasing after this next experience. Well, and that's why we, we talk about, uh, moral miracles, the moral miracles that the spirit of God seeks to uh, produce in the lives of individual believers as the fruit of the spirit uh, described in Galatians five are produced in the life of an individual. Um, That's the real sign of the work of the spirit of God uh, in his people is personal transformation and conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. And it's easy to think that no, the best evidence of the spirit's activity in our community is that all these miracles are taking place around us. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to start the wrap. Did you have another? No, I was just saying it was a great point. Oh yeah. There's just been so much, um, I think for me to, for me to think about, um, especially having probably dipped my toe, I was saying some NAR things, Um, and then, but then, you know, the flip side of that is seeing, um, things in, in South Africa or things in Zambia that I would say, you know, were valid and not, um, not just the, let me just chase after the next miracle or we're miracle hunters and miracles must occur and things like that. Um, and like I said, it wasn't like, you know, every other hour, every day and things. I lived there for four years and I can probably list off three things. Um, yeah, that, that I saw, but it was enough to me to be able to say, you know, there, I, I, I would lean toward continuationism, um, and definitely not cessationalism or cessationism. cessationism. Um, um, yeah, but, yeah, I, I I think you've brought out so many good points and just given me so much more to to consider. Yeah. Well, thank you for I, having us. Uh, yeah. There's, there's much more that we we could talk about. Of course, we've written about these things in our past publications, and we have a new book coming out later. Yeah, this we we're going to say it. Let's let's end that. And and um, I'm gonna have Bob put on the screen here, like uh, your book. And oh, that's very nice. Uh, of you. Thank yeah, you. tell us about what you guys have in the pipeline. Yeah. What's what's coming up that people can look forward to and how they can follow you and all that stuff. We have, we have two new books we're working on right now. Um, and we're not, um, we haven't began our public promotion of those books yet, but they have to do with the NAR. And, um, and so, and then we've written our two past books, of course, um, a new apostolic reformation is, and then the second one is God super apostles. And on top of that, I have a blog where I, um, I blog as well and have, have many followers from around the world who, who come and, and look for uh, updated articles there. I have a real database of articles going back many years now with a search feature that people can use if they want to look for particular topics. There's a comment on Facebook uh, on my Theology Mom page, Bob. I don't know if you can get it up, but I thought it was a good question um, from a viewer who was watching in uh, Holly, what's the difference between NAR and word of faith? I think that's a common mm-hmm. issue of confusion. Yes. So the word of faith movement, you know, is the movement that 
like I mentioned that our, our spoken words can create reality and you make confessions or declarations and, and create reality. Um, NAR ha, or NAR has um, incorporated word of faith teachings into its framework, into its theological framework. So the New Apostolic Reformation teachers teach that since the Protestant Reformation, God has been restoring truths that the church lost. It started with mm -hmm. salvation by faith, and then it continued, and it included that God restored the lost truth of word of faith teachings. God restored the prosperity gospel teachings uh, the, that God wants every believer to be healthy and wealthy. These are all supposedly lost truths that the church lost through the centuries, and that have been restored through present-day apostles and prophets. So mm -hmm. word of faith teachings, prosperity gospel teachings— these are all encompassed under in the framework of the new apostolic reformation and the truth that they claim to have restored. Okay. Very good. We've, um, we've placed the link to your books, um, in the chat. So guys check them out. Um, the link to Holly's blog is also there. Check it out. It's so helpful. Like our goal is really to empower believers to, you know, dig in and, and research and understand what does the word of God say? And, um, you know, Doug and Holly are excellent resources to be able to do that and to do it with a sound mind, not some, you know, Greek spirit, but to do it with a sound mind and in wisdom, this is what the word of God calls us to. And so, yeah, check it out. Thank you so much. Holly and Doug, it's just been great to have you on the show and I'd love to have you back sometime. Continue the conversation. Thank we you. can do a whole show about how Krista was in school. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. I'm sure Doug doesn't remember that. It was a long time ago. I'm very old. <laughs> She's counting on me having an old man's memory. <laughs> you guys, thank you so much. This was so helpful. Um, if nobody else got nothing, I'll tell you right now, I got something. Yeah, it was good. So, Thank yes, you so much. I learned a lot. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks for having us. Thanks. All right. Bye. Thank Bye. You so Bye. Much. Bye. 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 Okay. Yes. That I was said, great. That was good. Now, I know that Holly said that, you know, the word of faith was talking about, you know, health and wealth. And I'm not trying to be word of faith, but if the Lord want me to be healthy and wealthy, I said, yes, and amen, Jesus, <laughs> sure. come on through. I'm here for you. Your girl waiting. Yes. You've had your a fair share of uh, health and wealth teaching in your time. I think for, for a season, but I mean, I'm, I can still be here for the health and the wealth. <laughs> uh, so we had a few questions on the stream about J.P. Moreland's new book. Experience miracles. Experience miracles. We had lunch with JP, my uncle, a few weeks ago, and he gave us each a copy. We haven't read it yet, so yeah. we didn't want to put Doug and Holly on the spot to comment on it, and we haven't read it yet, so uh, we didn't bring that up. But maybe at some point we'll oh, <laughs> uh, we'll uh, talk about that um, if we like it. Maybe we'll have JP on. We'll see. But uh, it was. Uh, it's my uncle. How can we not like it? I'm, I hope we like it. I'm sure we will. <laughs> You got you got him on speed dial or what? I did. Him and Hope. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so I just wanted to address that. Also, I want to remind everyone that book groups start this week. If you want to uh, 
join one of our virtual book groups. We know that many of you are suffering with loneliness too. Uh, you struggle to find people after being canceled, maybe being canceled by your kids or your coworkers. Uh, we run these virtual book groups uh, for educational reasons, but also for fellowship reasons. So go check out the Center for Biblical Unity website, click on book clubs, check out the books that we're offering. I think and, it's under resources. Yeah. And uh, Bob is quick there. He's got that going for us. So we've got some books that are starting uh, up this week. Also, my class, uh, Man's Sin Salvation, is starting next week. So there's still time to sign up for that. We uh, are going through Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. for I'm calling it Theology for Regular People. So this is not theology for seminary students or pastors, theology for regular people. And we're going to, um, so if you, if you really kind of struggle, like your faith feels very fragmented and you watch a lot of podcasts, but you feel like you have this concept here, this concept here, this concept here, but you don't really know how to put it all together. Or if you've just come out of the word of faith, like maybe you watched American gospel and you're like, I'm not really sure what I believe, or you just are a new convert to Christianity, signing up for my class on Manson Salvation would be a great next step for you. So those are some thoughts. I think you have an ending thought for us. Yeah, I think, um, well, not even, I think my ending thoughts is just, it just harkens us back to Doug's words that Christ is our focal point. Tomorrow is Easter or Resurrection Sunday where we are celebrating um, the resurrection of Jesus. And, you know, may our, our day tomorrow, but may our life more importantly, really point to Jesus and him crucified, but him resurrected. And what hope that brings for life overall. So that is that is it. May you be blessed and know that he is risen. He is risen indeed. Just want to thank Doug and Holly again so much. Thank you all for being with us, for watching. Please share our show. Support the ministry by liking and, and sharing our show with someone else and help us to get the message out there um, that he is risen and he is risen indeed. Good night and God bless everyone. Good night. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.